Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I like traffic. I'm being real with you. I don't mind traffic. I'm not just doing material that fits my friendly face. You can imagine being in traffic and just looking at me and I'm like... But I mean it. I don't mind traffic. Is this a traffic city? Yeah. Who cares? What's the big deal? Just sit there. Nothing is being asked of you. Just fucking remain. <laughs> Surrender. <laughs> Surrender and remain. I know I'm in the minority. I always look to my left. There's always a guy in a white BMW that's like, God fucking damn it! A vein in his neck like a white chocolate Snickers bar. <laughs> like, where are you going? Hello, and welcome to The Last Laugh. My name's Matt Wilstein, and I'm a senior writer at The Daily Beast. This is a big one. Over the past eight years or so, I've spent literally thousands of hours listening to Pete Holmes talk about comedy, sex, and God on his podcast, You Made It Weird. Now, he has a brand new book about his life called Comedy, Sex, God, and I am so thrilled that he is here to talk about it on today's show. For anyone who loves Pete's podcast or his stand-up comedy or his HBO show Crashing, I think you'll also really enjoy his book, which provides the most honest account yet of his unique journey from dutiful Christian to rebellious atheist and back to the far more spiritually complicated person that he is today. We talked about all that, plus what it was like to find out that Crashing had been canceled by HBO after three seasons, and what he's excited to get into next. This is The Last Laugh with my very special guest, Pete Holmes. There's something sort of dirty about only promoting yourself. So I'll promote Pen15 <laughs> on Hulu. Uh, well, congrats on Comedy Sex God. Thank you very much. Um, I love the title. I've, I've always thought that uh, if your podcast wasn't called You Made It Weird, it could be called Comedy Sex God. So yes. I'm, I'm glad you're using the title uh, <laughs> for the book. Well, I was going to do, first of all, I'm glad that you get it. A lot of people are like, are you calling yourself a comedy sex god? No, I just want to start owning it. Yeah. Be like, yep. Yep. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it, those are the three topics that are the most interesting to me. And I was going, comedy just being art or creativity, sex being relationships or love, and God being just like a, a catch-all for like what's going on here, mm -hmm. what is existence. And I was going to write a trilogy. That's, that's ego. <laughs> that, that's my <laughs> Howard Hughes. Like, I'll write three books. <laughs> And I didn't want to wait to get to the God part. Right. In fact, like the other two are just a, a, another lens through which to talk about all of this. Mm -hmm. So I, I couldn't wait. So I just, I wrote one book called Comedy Sex God. Yeah. I mean, what, why did you feel like you were ready to, to write this book at this, at this point it's in your good life? question. I mean, Val and I, my wife, we were walking and I was like, it's weird. Nobody asked me to write a book. I was sort of having a moment of self-love and sort of appreciating myself now that it's done. I was like, it's kind of weird that 
usually people have things imposed on them. Like, hey, would you write a book? Or I know a lot of comedians that are approached to write books and and they sort of do it. And a lot of times, like James Corden just did my podcast and he was like, I wrote a book just because they asked me to and like I didn't even want to. And he was sort of. It's not the best reason to write a book. (laughs) I mean, right? I mean, I think he would agree. And he joked that it didn't even come out very well and he doesn't even really like it. It was very funny. I don't know if he meant it, but it seemed like he did. And I was just sort of like, oh, I've just been looking for a green light. I've been mm-hmm. looking for a green light because the hard thing about being very interested in religion and spirituality, which is very embarrassing, <laughs> just like it is embarrassing, like unfortunately in our world, and I totally understand, it's embarrassing to be interested or it can be to want to talk about these things. So, but I love talking about it more than anything, Buddhism and Hinduism and Christian mysticism and all that stuff is like literally number one in my life. It's funny, like, you know, you're supposed to be like, comedy is number one. Comedy is is just the vehicle I use to explore the mystery. Yeah. You know, so it really is number one is the mystery. But even these words are, are, are so, somewhat embarrassing, even as I say them now. So in life, it's hard to find a green light, somebody that wants to talk about it, and even harder, somebody that wants to hear you talk about it. So while I do it on my podcast, uh, you made it weird, usually the last third mm-hmm sometimes an hour, sometimes 30 minutes or whatever, is dedicated to talking about um, spirituality. Um, There's something about a book that says like, okay, I wanted God in the title. Yeah. As if to say, you buy this, you read it. It's a green light for me to just be like, okay, great. It's okay for me to talk about this stuff. And I really want to talk about it. So it was really, really fun to write. Um, it was difficult at times, obviously, to edit and all that sort of stuff. But I, I really wanted a, an excuse to have like a safe space. I'm all about building safe spaces. So I was like, <laughs> can I just put on the hat of spiritual author and, and enjoy it? And I really did. Yeah, well, I got to read the whole thing and just oh, and really, really enjoyed it. It was oh, such thanks. a fun read. I cruised, cruised through it. Um, yeah, I've heard a lot of people, I'm very proud of this, that they said it was easy to read. Yeah. And that was I think that's a compliment. one of my goals. Yeah. yeah. You don't want it to be like... Especially, you can slog through this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? As all the throat clearing I'm doing here to be like, it's embarrassing. The book doesn't do that. It's just yeah. like, hello, and it just gets <laughs> into it. Because spirituality to me is not um, very complicated. You know, I've been ta- I've been thinking a lot lately. I forget who said it. I don't know if it's one person that said it. But the ego, you know, your mind and all that stuff, given the choice between a journey and a destination, will always pick the journey because that's where it exists. You know what I mean? You take the destination, you take enlightenment, you take nirvana, you take conversion or salvation. It stops existing. So it doesn't really want it. So that's why we always like play this game of kicking the ball around for so long. And the, and maybe the next book will enlighten you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> when, when really we sort of have to come to terms with the fact that we don't really want to be enlightened or, you know, most of us don't really want it. It's very unpleasant. It's like whipping the sheets off you on a Saturday morning when you're trying to sleep in. So... Spirituality itself doesn't have to be as complicated as we make it. I think sometimes for fun, like it's like it's a fun hobby mm-hmm. to sort of play the, well, what if we looked at it this way? What if we looked at it this way? When really it's all just pointing you to like, you're not who you think you are. You're part of something that is one thing that's a mystery, that's infinite and ineffable. And that's not that hard to uh, surrender into. <laughs> 
so you you definitely give a lot of your yourself uh, in this book. You reveal a lot of yourself in this book. Are you um, maybe maybe yeah maybe even more than uh, <laughs> than your podcast or more than crashing in some ways? Are yeah, you, I tried. Are you uh, are you anxious for your? Do you know if your your parents have I read just it? Sent will it read to it? My parents because uh, <laughs> my mom wanted a, a, a signed copy. Yeah. So it's weird signing a a book to your mother for Mother's Day when you know that you talk about having a three-way in it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just like a weird thing. So much of my art, or whatever you want to call it, the stuff that I make, at a certain point I had to start telling my mother, it's just, it's not for you. Mm-hmm. You know, She watched Crashing, and at a certain point I, I had to just say, like, Mom, it's okay for you to watch these things. I like that you watch these things. But like, I really want to, because you're my mother, and because there's a lot of psychological baggage here, I would just say, just tell me it's great. And I know that's yeah. sort of weird, but I was like, I can't handle it. Yeah. Like if you if you were going to tell me that it's weird that you see my butt or something, I just don't want to hear that from you. Mm-hmm. Save that for your girlfriends. Talk about dad with dad. All you can say, I literally was very firm about it. I was like, all you can say is great. We loved it. That's all you can say. That's all I care. Just we loved it. Even if you didn't, just tell me you loved it. And um, the book is, you know, there's stuff about them. I sent them the first, I sent my mother and my brother the first chapter. I, I, the reason I didn't send it to my dad was my concern wasn't what they would think about it. It was more, am I remembering this correctly? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we all have a, a habit or a, an ability to change memories and stuff. So I just yeah. wanted to be like, am I remembering this correctly? Did you guys, did mom and dad fight every night? Is that correct? Like, that's how I remember it. Was mm-hmm. it correct? And my brother would be like, yep, that's right. And my mom would be like, yep, that's right. And it, it's not to hurt them, but I wanted to let people in. My favorite part of, it's weird to say, but of Born Standing Up, Steve Martin's book, is when he talks about the trauma that sort of made him funny. Yeah. So I wanted to include that. And while I'm a little bit nervous uh, as to what they might think, not not so much what they might think, I'm nervous that it would might hurt them, that is a huge part for me of being an artist or being a creative person is is you sort of almost like, you know, homicide detectives look at dead bodies all day. It's, it's weird, but I think they like couch that in. It's, it's part of the job, right? Mm-hmm. So you sort of give yourself, you make your own artistic license and you just go, it's part of the job. It's weird to share this stuff. But nothing is gained from me not being honest. And, and in fact, the more specific I am, the more universal the work becomes so people tell me like oh i had a family like that as well or my first um sexual experience was like that as well or this that or the other and and that's and that's what i'm here to do i'm trying to relieve suffering not create more suffering but one of the ways that i find i can relieve suffering is by sharing some of my own Mm -hmm. so i was very deliberate to like try and dig deeper than i even do on the podcast sort of memories and stories and ideas that require more silence than there is on the podcast. Like you really have to yeah. sit and kind of like try to remember almost like hypnosis and mm-hmm. dig deeper. So people that listen to the podcast, I think I know will find stuff in the book that that they didn't know. That's what I love about all comedy memoirs and memoirs in general. Is it's like, oh, wow, this person clearly was like quiet for an hour and then like yeah. remembered like yeah. some weird thing from their past. Yeah. And I think it's also fascinating to read the book after watching Crashing too, because you kind of, there are things that maybe were more dramatized and crashing than we're seeing the more real yeah. version of it. Like, for instance, your first girlfriend in L.A. seemed to have some some parallels to the cat character oh, yeah. on the yeah. show. Yeah. Um, so was that, uh, how did you think about sort of portraying that relationship on the show versus uh, putting it putting it in the book in a more real, real way? Yeah. 
You know, it's funny with that specific um, time in my life, uh, and and with my marriage, and with my mother. Mm-hmm. Often, what would happen is I would tell Judd um, Apatow, who produced the show, I would tell him what happened, what really happened, and he would almost always be like, "That's too fucking weird." <laughs> or, in the case of the girlfriend, I would tell him a story. And he would say, no one will understand why you don't just break up with the person. Mm-hmm. Because we're, we're I, I guess it's, it's tricky to show that type of codependence and infatuation. And what, what we tried to show with Kat and Pete on the show was that they were really codependent and deeply infatuated with one another. And maybe both, but certainly some borderline tendencies like weird unstableness happening. Um, so in the book, what, what I found very liberating about it was that there, wa- there wasn't a second opinion. I cherish and really appreciated Judd's perspective on how to turn something into TV mm-hmm. that people would like and not pull their hair out or you know, stop watching or just mm-hmm. hate. So he was very good at that. With a book, you know, something you're reading on an airplane or you know, waiting for you know, your friend to pick you up, it's a little bit more intimate and I can just be like, this is what it was really, really like. And it's brief. That that relationship is just one chapter. Mm-hmm. When I could have written a book just about that, the yeah. amount of the amount of like, uh, for lack of a better term, like fan mail, DMs, and whatever tweets, people being like, "Holy, holy shit! That is, I've been in that relationship where yeah. you're just like, it, it's a heartbreaker where you're really, really, really into somebody, and then just something like the water goes cold in the shower is basically how it feels, mm-hmm. and you just didn't see it coming, and you didn't intend it, and you didn't expect it." And, that, and that's what that felt like. Yeah, I mean, this stuff is clearly, you know, it's always fascinated you in your in your comedy and listening to your podcast and just seems like your your life from reading the book. Do you feel like you're getting, you're moving in a trajectory of, of like thinking about this stuff more and more as you get older? Or yeah. Do, yeah. I think that's part of it. Because I think, you know, Ricky Gervais says, um, he talks about nobody's really funny until they're, over 30. Mm-hmm. And I would agree with that. I, I think there's some really great young comedians and I thought I was pretty great when I was young. But there's something about the way that Ricky puts it is he says, you realize you ain't, you're not shit. Mm-hmm. So there's this sort of like surrendering that comes when you get older. Like I'll do this podcast or I did a live talk recently and I was, I caught myself being a little nervous. But when you're 40, and you've done hundreds of podcasts and hundreds of live talks and hundreds of shows and hundreds of dinners and hundreds of drives to the airport and all this stuff. You realize like, and then what? It happens mm-hmm. and then what? Like you just start to get a little bit zoomed out on your perspective and you get a little bit less attached to the specificity of your Pete's specific or Matt's specific story. And that perspective is deeply spiritual and it doesn't mm-hmm. have to come, like I said, through a symbol system something happens naturally and gracefully through just getting older, if we're paying attention, if we're being um, spacious, open people. It's built into our physiology. The slowing down of our minds, the slowing down of our bodies is sort of nudging us towards like, well, what lasts? What mm-hmm. What is going on here? What mm-hmm. What is a piece of you that isn't just little Pete? But big beat. Yeah. And you, you recently um, became a father. Yeah. And that obviously plays into this as well. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think there's this kind of cliche, especially with comedians, that when you become uh, a father, you're everything, or become a parent, everything changes. I think Bill Burr is often pointed to as uh, one of the. Die, die, 
Yeah, I, I just I just mentioned him so that you would do that. <laughs> uh, no, but but he's a uh, but but he's often uh, you know he was kind of this harder comedian and he still is. But yeah. you know maybe he softened up a little bit after having uh, so children. Funny. How do you think it's affected your uh, your comedic outlook? Well, I mean, it's affected everything. Is that you get front row seats? I, I talk to so many grandparents that are like, it's even better when you're a grandparent because you just visit them and then you don't have to take care of them. I was like, I think you're lying to yourself because it's it's the it's the everyday moments. It's not just the visit and the giggling. The aunts and the uncles that are like, oh, it's great, but you don't have to change their their booties. Mm-hmm. I'm like, no, it's the changing the booty. Yeah, you you understand that? <laughs> it's not the ride at Disneyland. It's waiting in the line for the ride at Disneyland that's actually going to have some impact on you. And I deeply believe that the ride is fun, and the grandparents and the aunts and uncles might be like. You know, we had a fast pass, and we just went on Pirates, and we went home. Mm-hmm. I'm like, nope, it's looking for parking, and it's changing booties. That's where the the real, any tradition, any wisdom tradition is going to mm-hmm. tell you the same thing, not yeah. just religious ones. Just a wise person would just tell you that that's where the juice is. So the most impactful thing for me is just seeing, okay, so the Christians call it the soul, and science calls it just consciousness, just base the phenomenon of consciousness and other people call it awareness. And so when we're talking about false self, real self, what I would say is your real self, your big self is just that, is just consciousness. And that's what I think God is. And I know that's a loaded word. So we can just say consciousness. And your small self is is Matt, is white male American Matt in his 30s, whatever podcast host. And me, I go comedian and I take a lot of, I catch myself Having putting a lot of value on that, like I'm a comedian, or yeah, I'm, versus a civilian, yeah, versus a civilian, exactly. That's a real <laughs> good glimpse. I call, or I used to call, I still do, non comedian civilians just the way that they do in the military. That's another good, like, I'm a lieutenant, yeah, I'm not a civilian. What does that mean? Yeah, I'm not in the private sector. These are all like stories that we tell ourselves to build up this identity, and identity feels really good, and it's like being from New England and you're a Patriots fan and you go to the parade and your team wins and your country wins and your gender wins and your race wins or whatever it might be. And that's all valid and that's all the play and that's the dance. We don't have to like completely denounce that. But like getting too lost in that, like really believing in that story can cause a lot of anxiety and pain and dread and suffering. This is Buddhism. It's the attachment that leads, it's the desire to be these things that leads to this suffering. So liberation is realizing that you really are just awareness, right? Or your soul or your spirit or whatever you want to call it. So watching my baby when I was hanging out with her, especially when she was really young, she's seven months now. So I'm starting to see her building her preferences and her mm-hmm. personality, but it's, it's coming in like a slow gas leak. It's just like fading <laughs> in very slowly. But at the beginning, it was, it still is wonderful to hang out with her. It's like hanging out with a guru. This is what they talk about when they hang out with gurus. It's someone who's selfless. It's somebody who has nothing to sell you. Mm. So she has no story. She doesn't know she's a, a girl She doesn't, or, or has a vagina. She doesn't know that she uh, is white. She doesn't know she's American. She doesn't even know she's a baby. She just is. She just is isness. Yeah. And that's what, you know, God in the Old Testament says his name is I am. I write in the book, I thought that was him being sort of precocious, like, mm, don't worry about it. <laughs> He's saying God is isness. God is the quality of being. So I got to watch pure being, and I got to hold pure being as it fell asleep. 
And when I go home today, pure being will look at me and smile. And that is a great reminder. So my favorite Bible verse is, lest you become converted, lest you be converted and become as little children, you shall not see the kingdom of heaven. So it's not about a belief or a philosophy or an ideology. It's about returning to a simple state of awareness, a pure state, a spacious state of awareness where you're saying yes to the world, where you're forgiving the world for being how it is. You're just part of the water. It's like the ocean and you're just water in the ocean and you're just like, yep, this is what it is. So there's less resistance, there's more flow, and that is what it's been like being with a baby. And people that, like, so Ram Dass's guru was, is named Maharaji. I tell that story in the book. And I was just in uh, Maui where Ram Dass lives uh, for this retreat. And a lot of the people that were with Maharaji, this like great saint, would meet my baby. And they were like, this, this is like being with Maharaji. There's, there is a conversion to little children-ness that these these people, these beings, they, they, maybe they do get angry. It's not about just being nice all the time. Maybe they're angry, grumpy, or yelling, or whatever. Um, but they're not attached to it. They, know, they haven't forgotten who they really are. And they remind us who we really are. And that's where peace is. That, that's really the, one of the most important things, I think, in the book, is that like, peace doesn't exist in, in our ego or in our story. You can experience peace you know, maybe you have a good meal and you have a cigarette and an espresso and you and you get that great feeling of like, ah, right? Yeah. And then it goes away. Like I, when I was in Maui, I, I had ice cream on the beach and I was eating it. And I was like, oh, wow, this is like a Corona commercial. <laughs> and then, you know, the ice cream's gone and this is straight Ram Dass. It's like, then you want water. Then you got to go to the bathroom. Then you got to eat. Then you got to, oh, now I'm lonely. I want to talk to somebody. Now I'm a little overwhelmed. I want to be alone. Now I'm tired. I want to sleep. Now I'm anxious. I got to get up. Now I want to shower. It's endless. So you have these little fleeting moments of peace or fleeting moments of joy. When spiritual people talk about joy, I mean, these are my own people. I, I just catch them talking about happiness, you know. Yeah, which is it's different. Fucking nonsense. <laughs> Circumstantial happiness is a fucking fool's errand. It's stupid. Ah, like you open Netflix and you're like, ah. I think it actually makes that noise when you. Or HBO makes the. Exactly. Like I can be okay for now, but a non-circumstantial joy, a non-circumstantial peace, can only exist in in your soul. Can only exist in your base awareness. So the practice of spirituality is trying to step deeper in and spend more time in the now. And, and the now is where, your, is where your soul is, and it's where God is. And it's not just to believe the right thing or be a member of the right group for when you die. It's to experience it here and now, something that will actually, it's very practical, make you feel less afraid because you, you know who you really are. Coming up, Pete Holmes reveals how he found out his HBO show Crashing had been canceled. I do want to talk about uh, Crashing, which I, I just want to tell you, first of all, is uh, I just love the show okay. uh, so much. I feel like it's it was like made for me. Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> Why is which that? I, 
just because I love comedy so much, and oh, it's uh, yeah. you know, I feel like there's probably a lot of people out there who who felt that way about the show, yeah. um, and you know, are sad that it that it's not going to be on anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, Judd uh, revealed uh, that it had been canceled on his Conan appearance. That's at least how I found out. Yeah. Um, how did you find out that that watching you Conan? Be... <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I actually found out the day that I recorded that Adam McKay podcast. Oh, really? Yeah. And I told him, it was actually a great story. I told him afterwards. I didn't tell him before. And I said, Crashing was canceled. And he was like, oh, I'm sorry. And then he went, how many seasons did you do? And I said, three. And he went, I'm not sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was a great perspective. Because yeah. like, so if Pen15 didn't get a second season, I would be really, it would be different for me than for them. For them, that would mean that their year freed up. You know, there's like different, there's more layers to it. Mm -hmm. So I was able to be a little bit, I, I had something else to lean into. I was like, oh, I can be with my daughter more. I mm -hmm. can, I can, I, I, I'm a comedian and comedians are like sharks. We like moving. We like novelty. We like moving and finding new things and stuff. So I could sort of position my grief into that direction and that sort of alchemized it into gratitude and, and, um. Uh, kind of wondering what would be next in a good way. But the fans, to them, that's not their lives. I've been working on the show for yeah. four years. It's just It just means a show that they like it isn't coming back. So yeah. it's almost like it was probably even harder maybe for a, a really big fan of the show than it might have even been for me. Because I could just go like, oh, wow, I, I've been with these same writers mm -hmm. for four years. Yeah. We sat in the same seats, you know, like it was starting – starting to feel a little trippy, like like Black Mirror-ish, that I was like, I'm back in this seat, and you're at that seat, and, and it all starts to sort of blur together. That's not to say it was bad, and I would have liked to keep going, um, but it was different for me. Yeah. Well, I think you, you ended on a great uh, final episode as yeah. well. Um, and we knew that, too. Yeah. Um, one, I love the uh, the casting of John Mulaney as a complete asshole. Yeah. Uh, he's a friend of yours, I think. Yeah. Uh, so... How did you uh, how'd you how'd you decide to to use him in that way for the for the final episode? Well, it's funny because crashing is about comedians helping comedians, and then crashing making crashing was really that in practice was that like Sarah Silverman had like a medical scare the week before she was supposed to mm. shoot, and she still came. Wow! Didn't have to do it. Sarah Silverman does not need any help getting her name out there. John Mulaney does not need any help getting his name out there. Um, these people like did it out of love. I really believe that. Like Mulaney is one of my oldest friends and one of my best friends and I love him very much and one of my favorite comedians by far. And you know, y you're like if we bend over and, and backwards and try and make it like as easy as possible, can you find a couple days to do this? And he would do it and it was awesome in the middle of all his touring and stuff. But we joked that that was like the real Mulaney. I was like, we're going to write it the real Mulaney. Because John and I love being jerks. Like when we hang out, we talk so much shit. It's just so fun. You know, Yeah. <laughs> for all this like spiritual stuff, there's also just an appreciation. Sometimes I'll, I'll be talking to like, quote unquote, spiritual people. And I'm like, I'm sorry to gossip. And then I'll go, what am I kidding? I love it. <laughs> this is so fun. Let's just get in the fucking shit and gossip. And enjoy it and be God gossiping right now. <laughs> yeah. you know? So Mulaney and I love doing that stuff. And I, I think especially nice guy comedians like he and I that are sweeter. Um, and we are. 
love going against that type and showing mm -hmm. some of our, our darker side or, or more, you know, funny, kind of nasty. I don't know what the word is. It's not really nasty. It's just sort of like brutally honest kind yeah. of side. So he enjoyed playing that. <laughs> a lot of his best lines are riffs and it was very natural for him to be an asshole. <laughs> I'm kidding, of course, John. And uh, and the episode ends with this, you know, first great set at the Comedy Cellar. Um, yeah. What did it feel like to to shoot that part? And is that based on sort of a real? Did, were you thinking about a real experience when you were um, when you were doing that? Well, we wanted to show that, like, through the whole season series, Pete's sort of doing a type of comedy that I really like, but can be very fluffy and just sort of light. And he's just sort of talking about, you know, ice packs or whatever. And he, and then he has this toxic at times relationship. And then he does a joke that's about the relationship and he sort of comes alive sharing his pain, mm -hmm. you know? So instead of just being like, isn't it weird that, or have you ever noticed this? He's going like, God, this drove me nuts that my girlfriend would make me miss the train. Mm -hmm. And it and and in that sharing it with the audience, he comes alive. I'll tell you, the main difference between being single and having a girlfriend for me in the city is missing the train. <laughs> when I'm single, listen to me now, when I'm single, I don't miss it. I make it, just a free man, just one free man with agency and free will, I make it. I hear it through the grate and I assess its direction like a herd of buffalo that I'm stalking and right on the stairs. I tear my shirt open a little bit just to feel more like a man and I make it two at a time on the stairs. That's a leap. I'm leaping, I'm leaping down the stairs. I get my Metro card out strong. I'm swiping in down the stairs before the doors close. I have time to get my hat that I dropped like Indiana Jones, put it on, light a cigarette, kiss a woman I don't know. I make it. But when I had a girlfriend, I never made it. I never made it. I'm already swiped through because I get my Metro card out on the stairs. She gets to the thing, to the turnstile. She's opening her bag to retrieve another bag. She's got a bag within a bag, Russian doll system of baggery. She's got all these dead Metro cards. Why does she keep the dead Metro card? Are you scrapbooking? But you know, it was hard to do those. The stand-up was, far and away the hardest thing to do because it was it was background actors and it's like 11 in the morning and I, I really felt bad for them often because they're corralled you know people mm -hmm. interested in background acting just know that it, it, it is an exercise in humility I think is because you know you're brought there way before you're shooting mm -hmm. you're kept in like a common area I'm not saying our show was worse than others I'm just saying this is what it is yeah. like, there's going to be a common area there's going to be maybe some snacks or something there's going to be a lot of fucking waiting. And then, like, the DP is going to look, and it's going to be too packed in the club. And oh, it's supposed to be a Tuesday. Let's get a third of the people out. <laughs> and then someone's going to come out and go, like, 18, 57, 62. And that's you. Yeah. You're a number, and you are you leave. So the thing that you wanted to be in the show maybe won't happen for that scene. You'll be in the next scene mm -hmm. or whatever. So it wasn't easy. And so it wasn't always understandably a great audience yeah. to perform for. Not because they were grumpy or anything, but because they're... 
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Do you know when Crystal Pepsi was discontinued? What was in Al Capone's vault? Or which famous meteorologist is Lenny Kravitz's second cousin? If not, then you haven't spent enough time on Wikipedia. But that's okay because you can learn it all on the new podcast, WikiHole, from Smartless Media. Discover the craziest rabbit holes on Wikipedia with host and friend of the last laugh, Darcy Carden, and her favorite comedian friends, as they bring the cyber frontier directly to your tympanic membrane. And if you listen to Wikihole, you will learn that's the sciencey term for eardrum. Wikihole is a hyperlink roller coaster, starting out on one Wikipedia page and then going from link to link to link to link, careening through trivia, oddities, and unexpected connections until everyone wonders. How the hell did we get here? Follow Wikihole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to Wikihole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Listening to the jokes in the wide shot, then they're listening to the same shot jokes again yeah. in the in the close-up. And, and it, like I said, it's 11 a.m. on a Tuesday and some of them are tired or bored or looking at their phones. I mean, if you watch... The Temple episode of Crashing, I think we removed it with VFX, but like there was a guy with an earbud in <laughs> Trying to get away with something. Yeah, he was just listening to, a, maybe it was my podcast. Yeah, <laughs> probably. But you know, I'm up there and I would look out in the audience and there were people asleep. Again, I, I wasn't mad at them. I understand yeah. it's not an easy job. Or you'd see people on their phones or you see people listening to one earbud. So it was very, very hard to recreate. So you'd have to act. I'd always mm-hmm. tell the comedians, I'm like, you have to act like you're doing well. Yeah. And we'll add laughs mm-hmm. and we'll cut it in a way that makes you look good. So for to have a story contingent kill was very difficult. Mm-hmm. So in that finale. Yeah, before that, you mostly aren't doing that well. Great. <laughs> if you want me to bomb in front of extras, I mean, uh, that is the easiest thing in the world to do. That set, the original direction from Judd was that Pete should go up and do, he should almost do like an enlightened set. Hmm. And almost be like he, his his note was he should go up and be like a little bit like Leaf, so it should be like three seasons of all these conversations and talking to Pendulette and talking to all these mm-hmm. people, um, talking to Sarah Silverman should come into play and Pete should really get it. So we shot it, and I did this really not hilarious, but funny set about how we're like all confused and we're on a planet and we're floating in expanding space and no one knows what's going on and and that's okay. Mm-hmm. And it really like everybody was that was there, myself included, you know, we got the chills. Like it was like this very beautiful set. 
Yeah. And I said that it was my favorite thing that we had shot. I was like, that's it. That's the best thing we've shot. And when they showed me the cut, it's like, that's my favorite thing we've shot. Val and I watched it uh, in the editing bay, and we both cried. And my showrunner, Judah Miller, he was emotional. And we were both just like, this is the best finale ever. And this is, again, one of those times where you need someone like Judd to come in. And Judd goes like, this is the finale. He just did that thing with Mulaney, and he like he's feeling himself, and he's going to go in the cellar. And I don't think it needs to be like it was like four minutes mm-hmm. or something. He's like, it doesn't need to be four minutes. It can be like 90 seconds. Just show Pete killing yeah, and then move on. We, we need to get to him and Allie. Mm-hmm. You're slowing down the momentum of yeah. the episode. And that wasn't easy. He told me that on a Friday. And I'm, I pride myself on being easy to, to work with. And I respect my, you know, I don't want to say superiors, but Judd is, you know, knows what he's doing. So I, I would keep my mouth shut. He knows the story. I wouldn't say anything. And then I'd take the weekend to really literally meditate on it. Mm-hmm. And then on Monday, I was like, I, I get it. I see what he's saying. Yeah. But that was a, that was one of those darlings that I had to let go yeah, of. Yeah, that, that sounds tough. To It was hard. Yeah. <laughs> and there were some people on the staff that were really adamant that it was the wrong decision. And we brought it up uh, gently mm-hmm. again. And Judd every time would be like, let's watch it. Show it to me. Show me the cut. Let's watch the whole episode with your version. And let's watch the whole episode with my version or the other version that he directed. And he was right. When I watched it on the night and I had a little distance, you need somebody from the outside when you're making a project like this. Totally. You can get up your own ass too much. This is what happens, I think, with a lot of auteurs. You know, they don't have – Seinfeld needs his Larry David. You know what I'm saying? I'm not saying we were Seinfeld. I'm just saying mm-hmm. you need – in fact, Mulaney told me once he was like one of the things with his show that he felt like didn't – one of the reasons it didn't quite gel was because he needed that other – like simpatico relationship. Yeah. I know he had a lot of great people. I, I don't want to yeah. misquote But it was John. kind of all on him in some ways. I or... think he might have felt that way. I, again, yeah. I can't quite remember the exact quote, so forgive me, John, if I'm getting that wrong and you hear this. I just know that we all need somebody like Judd that goes like, nope. Mm-hmm. Even when you're like, I'm pretty sure. They go like, I made Freaks and Geeks. And you're like, okay. You're like, fine. <laughs> Yeah, and it. yeah, and he can be kind of brutal in his uh yeah. in his uh assessment of things or But you know, he and I I think he would agree if he was here. He told me once that it meant a lot to me. He was like I like you're the person that I've argued with like the least or butted heads with. And I I took a lot of pride in that cuz I I I'm a believer in giving respect and and you know in love pushing back from time to time and there was only one time that i that i insisted on something and it was that the pastor in season one shouldn't be wearing a collar but that was very i was like that's catholic or i'm not catholic he's like but he looks like a doctor i was like our pastors look like doctors (laughs) that's just how it is yeah i say in the book they look like girls basketball coaches (laughs) i was like that's just what it is he's like it doesn't look like a, a a pastor to me and i was like i understand i really just think we need to Trust me on this because mm-hmm. it's my experience. And, and he did not push back, even though he's right. It, it looks like I'm talking to a doctor. Yeah. Um, going back to the, the scene that did end up in the finale, um, the set at the cellar, did you, do you feel like you had that moment in real life where you went from mm-hmm. maybe talking about more frivolous things on stage to, having, to sharing something of yourself? You know, it's funny. I, I think the distinction, it's not necessarily, even though I said that, it's not necessarily whether or not you're talking about fluffy stuff or real stuff. 
it's talking about what makes you like come alive. Mm -hmm. So when Seinfeld's talking about cotton balls, I believe that that's important to him. Yeah, he's the guy that's like. Kirkland water, you know, purifying <laughs> water, spring water, sparkling water. Like he gets, he comes alive when he talks about that stuff. I come alive when I'm, that bit was on my Comedy Central Presents, my first like sort of big, it's the half hour um, special. About and the I, subway. Uh, about the subway, about yeah. my girlfriend. And um, that was, I think, the first joke that I felt like I had found my voice. And the way that I knew that was that I didn't need to recite it. It wasn't like Kirkland water, water from the land of Kirk. What is a Star Trek water? You know, it's not that. It's not like this, then this, then this. Mm -hmm. It's talk about how you feel when your girlfriend makes you miss the train and know that these are the big punchlines, like the mm -hmm. sort of shotgun blasts. Like the first one is here, the first one is there. But you're communicating it rather than dictating it. So that's how I write stand up now, is that I don't necessarily just go to the thing that I think is super funny. Sometimes I do. Like I'll just like do like Pierce get beers or something silly like that. I love stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But the things that I write down now most often are jokes that I know how I feel about that. Like I, I, I have a clear connection to the part of me that feels this way about magic or this way about um, Google or this way about I'm trying to think of a newer joke of mine I'm like a bad fan of mine I can only think of jokes from 10 years ago but that's sort of the time period we're talking about so it, I started calling them shotgun bits it was it was joke and or playground bits there were bits that like you don't have to think about how you play on a playground you know the playground you know the terrain just go around and play on it you can go out of order you can add something you can take something away it doesn't matter you know how to play as opposed to what I think a lot of the first 10 years of standup is, is like trying to memorize like a perfect, even like your, like my early standup had like, how y'all doing tonight? Like mm -hmm. written out. Yeah. And then like at a certain point you realize the best and truest way. And I saw Louis controversy noted, um, do this is, is like, I was in Boston and I saw him go up and he was just like, there's no good way to start. Mm -hmm. and I was like, that's the best way to start. <laughs> he did it. That's it. He's acknowledging the uh, inherent uh, awkwardness or he's falseness of it. Yeah. He's proving that he's here. Mm -hmm. And in my most recent special, Dirty Clean, it starts with me just looking at the audience and not saying anything. And I, I read one review that like mentioned that it seemed like I was maybe a little rusty because I didn't know how to start. <laughs> and I was like, you realize we could have edited that out. Like, that's yeah. an easy lift. I'm just standing still. Yeah. You can cut that out. And that's on purpose. I want to demonstrate to the live audience, even if maybe it didn't quite communicate to the television audience. I think it did, but this person didn't. Um, you want to show them that you're there. And that is, you know, the amateur, the difference between an amateur and a, and a professional, in my opinion, is... The amateur uh, is doing his joke and then um, something happens. Someone in the audience is talking to their waiter and they go like, jelly beans, right? Just to their <laughs> waiter. The amateur will continue pushing mm -hmm. through mm -hmm. their bit about the eight slotted toaster. Mm -hmm. And the and the professional will go, is this guy trying to order jelly beans <laughs> in a bar? And like follow that. Yeah. Even – even if they don't know where it's, uh, of course they don't know where it's going. They'll they'll follow what is, and that not to force it. That is a spiritual thing. Can we say yes to what is happening, right. including a bad show or a bad interview or a bad date? 
that is art, is like flowing with and still somehow managing to have agency over. So two, it's a paradox, agency over and flowing with something. Yeah, and it's a, it's a confidence thing too and probably comes from time that you, well, you trust that if you, say, if you say the jelly beans thing that it, you yeah. won't, everything won't fall apart. That's right. And it doesn't work. Uh, right away. Yeah. I, Bill Burr. Da, 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 da. <laughs> I was doing a show with Bill Burr, and there's a video on YouTube with the comments disabled because I don't. I uploaded it so long ago. I was terrified people would like make fun of it. <laughs> it's called Pete Holmes bombing. It's not a great video. You don't have to watch it. But it's me in Peoria, and I'm opening for Bill Burr, and there was no MC. It was just a guy did announcements, then me, then Bill. So I was going up cold, and I did very badly. My opening joke was about the phrase, spill the beans. <laughs> I mean, what am I doing? It was, it, I, I like that joke, but it's not a great opener when they don't know you or care about you or you're not that funny. I'd like to start off by uh, putting you guys at ease. You know, I'm not gonna do any jokes that ruin the plots of movies that are currently in the theater. You know, I hate when comics do that. Sweet Home Alabama, not gonna spill those beans. phrase spill the beans originated in a situation actually involving beans? Like some guy with a sack of beans walking down the street? Hey, what's in that sack? Nothing. <laughs> beans! So I would bomb and bomb again and bomb again. And, and then I said to Bill, because he was so good. He is so good. He's still, if not my favorite comic, definitely one of my favorite comics. He, I said, what do you do? If, if, if something you do is horrible and bombs, what do you do? He goes, just acknowledge it. <laughs> just go, well, that sucked. <laughs> so next show, I went on stage. I told my spill the beans joke. It got nothing. And I went, well, that sucked. And like, no, no one laughed because I wasn't, even the way that I just said it wasn't the way that I said it then. I was probably like, well, well that sucked. <laughs> like, I didn't have the, my, I didn't have the roots in the ground. Mm. And I didn't have the joke that was good enough to follow a declaration that you suck. If you go, that sucked, and then you do a Bill Burr bit, yeah, you're fine. Mm -hmm. But so much of comedy is doing a joke that sucks, and you can't acknowledge that it sucks because it's all you have. Yeah, You're, you're a salesman selling bad knives, <laughs> and you just have to sweat through it and go like, well, this one can cut a penny. <laughs> and it's a fake penny. That's comedy. <laughs> uh, yeah, and you demonstrate that also in the final episode of, of Crashing when you acknowledge that they announced the wrong name when you walk right. on stage at, at Town Hall, Oh, there you right? go. That's Jelly Beans. Yeah. That's going, it's not Ben Holmes, it's Pete Holmes. And then following that and telling the story that you probably weren't planning on telling about Well, that's about the whole and, series. That's the yeah. whole series is about making friends with change, right? So when, when the show was canceled, people were like, you must be devastated. And I was like, I made a show about making friends with change. Mm -hmm. I think I'm... You know, I think I'm okay, maybe definitely better than I used to be at dealing with change. So I, I can roll with this. And that is what the show is about. He makes friends with the guy who has sex with his wife. That's a metaphor. Mm -hmm. If you if we don't know what myths are, this is a myth. I didn't really become friends with the guy that had sex with my wife. But metaphorically, I did. I made friends with the idea mm -hmm. that my wife had an affair. So how do you tell that in a mythic way? You become friends with Leaf. Mm -hmm. Leaf becomes your friend, and he ends up helping you. That's that's a, a great example of a myth for me. Coming up, 
Pete Holmes opens up about filming his last scene with Artie Lang in the crashing finale. So now uh, that that this show's over and you have the the book, I mean, there were there stories that you wanted to tell in the in the future of the show that you are maybe thinking about telling in some other way or uh, in other platforms or, or yeah, any of that. A, I, it sounds like a marketing ploy, but it's like the book sort of is the fourth season of Crashing. I don't really say that a lot because mm-hmm. it sounds so phony and show busy. But it's like if you wonder what happened after that, that's what the book is about. It covers meeting Conan. It covers getting my talk show. Mm-hmm. It covers meeting Judd. It covers getting Crashing and all that sort of stuff. So I'm wondering now, I, I don't know what how to do it. Mm-hmm. There is more story to tell. I don't think it would be, a, be a, about me mm-hmm. directly, my literal story. Yeah. So I'm like, who else can we can we make up a story? Can we tell someone else's story? But uh, I, I really don't know, and that's okay. Um, we also there was one last uh, Artie Lang uh, appearance in the in the finale as well. Um, yeah. Have you uh, have you heard anything from him? Are you in touch with him? I know everyone has been concerned about about him over the last uh Well, to know Artie is to be concerned about him. I say that with love. I would say that if he was here. He's heard it. He he knows. Yeah. Nobody knows Artie and how Artie is perceived better than Artie. So there's nothing you can say that's going to be like, wow, you wouldn't he wouldn't be like upset or offended, mm-hmm. I hope. But um the way that I get in touch with Artie is by texting a friend of his that's sort of like a I don't know, an assistant or a friend. He's really like a friend. So you can't text Artie, you know, when he's in rehab, he doesn't have his phone. So you have to, like, talk to him through somebody else. Mm-hmm. So I haven't talked to him uh, directly. I saw that video of him working. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I, uh, it was a little bit sad shooting that scene because Artie was sort of coming undone by that point. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, he's at the table and Pete's in a suit and Mulaney's in a suit. And he sort of goes back and he sits at the table with the new guys, you know, mm-hmm. like with John. It's not to say that he's like leaving Artie, but in a way there's there's sort of like this hint at like, well, now maybe he'll go this direction. Mm-hmm. And that that sort of broke my heart a little bit to yeah. see that image of, and John makes fun of Artie. Yeah. So there's sort of like a high status like play going on there. So that was heavy for me. I, if there's one thing that I wish to make a fourth season for, it would be to redeem Artie a little bit more mm-hmm. and to have that be the last time we see him at the table sort of going like, oh, look at Pete. He's he's in the club. It's sort of like a, a breakup. Like he doesn't need me anymore. He got in the club. He has his own apartment. Mm-hmm. His future's mm-hmm. looking brighter. Um, you know, Mulaney is like the golden boy of comedy and, and now John likes him. So it's hopeful for Pete, but like I wish – we the whole all three seasons we kept pitching to Artie. We were like, Look, as if you need one more reason to get well, and I know he wants to get well. Um, but it, if one thing's for sure, addiction is a straight up disease, it's a real, real disease. Um, I know people know that, but like, you know it now. I like know it, I've, mm-hmm. I've experienced it or seen it, witnessed it. I, we were always like, we want to do an episode where Pete is going 
to the dark side and Artie is wearing a sweater and has his hair combed and is like found maybe even found the Lord or something like and is trying to convert Pete. Yeah. We thought that was so funny mm-hmm. that like he would be wearing khakis and <laughs> drinking a Starbucks and just like pleading with Pete that he should smoke less pot or something. Yeah. Um and I would I, I still, you know, hold out hope that, you know, he's I, I think he's clean now, you know, he's in rehab. And it might have been one of the longer periods that he's been feeling. Um, and that that would be, you know, I haven't I haven't thought of a, a story for crashing because they were sort of like you could do a movie. And I was like, I don't know what the movie would be. Right. But if there's one thing that would be interesting to me, it would be like that story for Artie. What would that story be for him? Yeah. Because that is one of the dangling threads. Um, so I think we, we have to start wrapping up, but I want to do um, a quick uh, speed round uh, going through some sort of major uh, moments in your career, a few of them, and, and see uh, what sort of the first memory or, or story or oh, thing that fun. comes to mind. Cool. Um, you used to do warm-up for The Daily Show. Yeah. Um, so what when you think about that, what, what comes to mind? Well, I mean, I think like a lot of warm-ups, our first story will always be the day that they needed 45 minutes. <laughs> You'd go out, and uh, usually it would be about five to ten minutes. But there was a, a time that I did it, and you know, especially with the Daily Show, you know, they're doing the news of the day. Something would break, or something would change the story. So they're doing some frantic rewrite, and I would go out, and you know, you're doing your best stuff at the top because usually that's all you have to do. And then there's another thirty-five <laughs> minutes. And uh, I, I remember that very vividly. I also, it, we did something sort of like this based on the show, was I would go into the crowd and there was this older woman to the right, uh, stage right, and I, I started sort of making fun of her. I remember I just said, thanks for taking a break from knitting to come to the show. And no one laughed. I was like, that's not that mean. <laughs> and then afterwards they were like, that's John's mother. Oh my God. It was John Stewart's mom. And I said, I was like, can you please tell me if John Stewart's mom, he really liked it. He thought it yeah. was funny. But like, that's what we did on the show. Remember that, that mm-hmm. Rachel Ray's mom yeah, yeah. is in the audience. Uh, so on Crashing, we got to like go like, well, how bad could that have gone? Yeah. But there was always a chance that you might um, piss somebody off. And back in those days, it wasn't cute. It wasn't like funny. That was my livelihood. <laughs> You know, or at least part of it. Um, the next one would be your uh, stand-up debut on a Jimmy Fallon show in in twenty ten. Oh, wow. Yeah, your that, your TV stand-up debut, I should say. That was yeah. That was um, that was my late night debut. Yeah, my first one was Premium Blend, which was uh, I guess it became live at Gotham, but it it was like I was doing Comedy Central, um, and I did seven minutes, I think, and they cut it down to three, and it really hurt my feelings. (laughs) And they cut out... So I had this joke where I was like... um, When I was younger, I looked more like Prince William. So I would joke that I was like, look, it's Prince William, was like my opening joke. And then later, I said, um, John Ritter. I I made a joke that said I look like John Ritter. And then I go, this guy did two look like jokes and then I went who does this guy think he is Val Kilmer three and that was the point of the Mm -hmm. joke and they cut it after 
John Ritter. So it just looked like I made two look like jokes without making the joke about the look like jokes, which was the point of doing yeah. both look like jokes. And I was really embarrassed. You know, when you're starting, you really don't want to look like a hack. And doing look like jokes is is pretty hack because everybody does it. That's what mm -hmm. hack means, kind of. Um, so that was a real heartbreaker. And then I was like, oh, I'm not going to get a half hour and all this stuff. But then it, I ended up getting one, which was a, a real thrill. But then with Fallon, I remember I write about it in the book, but I played it really safe. And mm -hmm. I did all these like one liners. I wanted to do like a bulletproof set. And I think a line from Comedy Sex God is I said, I forgot that the only thrill in stand up is by taking chances and having them work. So I did it. It was fine. Uh, I got to meet Green Day, and I saw Lorne Michaels in the hallway. But I didn't get any thrill from it because it was just like – it was basically like reading tweets. Mm -hmm. I just went out and was like, here's a bunch of jokes that you could tell anyone, and anyone could do them. And I thought that's what a good late-night set was. Then later, the first time I did Conan, I did – I think it, I went long, which you shouldn't do – um, but I ended up doing like six and a half minutes or something because I did this big Google joke and like, but that was a riskier, it's like a piece. It's not a joke. It's a piece and it could have not worked. And I had done it where it didn't work because they didn't understand or I, I couldn't feel it, couldn't hit the notes. And that was a thrill. So I learned from my first one that like just doing effective jokes isn't really the point isn't really the, the soul of a comedian. Taking risks and having them work and, and, and taking a chance by revealing yourself is what makes stand-up so fun. Not just going like, you ever hail a cab just to stop it from hitting you? I mean, that's a fine joke, but like, you can't do five minutes of those and expect to remember it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then the last one would be the, the first time that you met Judd Apatow, who's obviously become a big uh, mm. you know force in your, in your life and career. Yeah, I mean, I joke, my manager, who I love to sort of playfully rib. I sometimes called him my friend who I pay. Um, and he is my friend. He's like a family member. Um, he made that happen. I, I was at South by Southwest, and whenever you're at South by Southwest or Sundance or something, mm -hmm. they'll give you a list of all the people that are there. And they're yeah. like, who do you want on your podcast? And I was like, do you want Casey Affleck? Yeah, I'd like Casey Affleck. <laughs> you know, I know he had a scandal too, but you know what I'm saying. Like, It's all these stars. Yeah, And you're like, Judd was one of them. And mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, you give them like a couple yeah. names. I think I, I only picked Judd and maybe one or two others. Well, and this I, was the fateful podcast, right? Because it, yeah. it was it created all these uh, the projects who, right. was with uh, Kumail, right? Well, Kumail, who made The Big Sick with him. Mm -hmm. Chris Gethard, who um, made uh, Career Suicide with him. Right. And then me, who made Crashing with him. And then we always joke that, and Todd Berry. <laughs> and Todd Berry was <laughs> Todd already, you know, has a career and stuff. Uh, and Judd already knew Todd, I think. But he met these three new people and, and ended up making projects with either, each of them. So it was the most productive podcast of all time. Absolutely. And I feel like Kumail owes me 10% <laughs> of Stuber. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But it, honestly, uh, that's 100% a joke because it's, it's – if you can – um, sort of trot out incredible talent and be like, look, you know, to Judd, because mm, Judd's yeah. like the key guest. Yeah. And go like, Chris Gethard, yeah. you look cool for being the guy that knew Chris Gethard. Chris mm -hmm. Gethard taught me improv. And the whole time I was like, this guy's incredible. And then you get to plug him into 
the the power source, and the mm-hmm. same thing with Kumail. Yeah, I mean th- they did it a hundred percent, and and but my manager, Dave Rath, should get ten percent of Stuber <laughs> <laughs> because he got Judd on it. Yeah. Um, so the last thing that I like to do, and this is, I have to admit is inspired by, uh, you made it weird cause I'm such a big fan of you. Oh, thanks, so man. on your podcast, for anyone who doesn't know, you asked the hardest time you ever laughed. Yeah. So I'm not going to do that, but I do, um, I would like to know when the, the last thing that made you laugh really hard, uh, could be a, you know, a piece of comedy, a movie, a TV show, or just something that, that oh, happened yeah. in your life. Sure. I'm happy to do this cause it's, it's, I don't know how popular this guy is, but there's a guy on YouTube. <laughs> This was yesterday. I always try to get people to tell me like one from like the past couple days. Mm-hmm. And if there's anything that I, I I feel successful about is that Valerie and I laugh very hard most days. I know that sounds like like we leave live in East Egg in the Hamptons. <laughs> <and we're> just, <laughs> it's not that. I swear yeah. it's crunchier and more hippie than and we're laughing at our baby farting or sneezing in my face or something. It's very basic stuff. But there's this guy on YouTube who I love. Um, and I think he knows I love him because we follow each other on Twitter. But his name is Nakey Jakey. <laughs> I think he's really talented. And he makes these video game posts on YouTube. And uh, he made this – this the first one that I saw of his was about how Red Dead Redemption 2 um, – there was something missing about it. And I love Red Dead Redemption 2. Did you play it? I don't, but – it doesn't matter. It, it was like this highly. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of our listeners do. So. I'm sure, uh, most of us. And if they want to advertise with us, you know, Rockstar. No. <laughs> I mean, sure, they can advertise with me too. I, I, you know, I only do ads for things I love, so I would do Rockstar. So anyway, it was like ten years in the making. This like anticipated game, and and it is a masterpiece. It's a ten out of ten, but there's something missing about it. And he did this video about it that gave language to it and it was also really funny. So then I became obsessed with Nakey Jakey and I was watching one yesterday with Val. She was we were waiting to watch something together and while I was waiting I put on his video about video game box art and he <laughs> he showed the box for the Mega Man cover in Japan and it's this cool like remember Mega Man mm-hmm. for Nintendo? And it's this cool, like, cartoony Mega Man and all the villains, and it's a really cool box. <laughs> and then he cuts to the the U.S. version. And even if you – I I could remember it. It's, <laughs> it's the worst drawing of the weirdest sort of androgynous, weird leg gap, like, metal jock strap, the strangest face you've ever seen drawing of Mega Man. And he cuts to it. In such a way and with like this type of reveal and Evanescence is playing in the background. <laughs> and we watched it maybe five times, just the way that he reveals it. Yeah. And then he does a hard cut to the jockstrap and it killed me. <laughs> it made me laugh so hard. I know on my podcast when people talk about things that they watch that made them laugh, it's not always the best answer because you haven't seen it. Yeah. But you can see it. Yeah. Nakey Jakey on Let's YouTube. Look that up. Yeah. All right. Nakey, if you hear this. I want a shout out. He does shout outs at the end. Call me Petey Pants. <laughs> That's how we'll know if he was listening to this. Yeah. Uh, well, thank Someone you. Someone will tell him. <laughs> Someone will tell yeah, let's YouTube hope so. mogul Nakey Jakey. Uh, well, thank you so much, Pete, for uh, for taking the time. I don't think we went quite as long as uh, as most of you made it weirds, but we did we did okay. As I say with the guests that only have an hour for me, I always tell them, if the guest comes ready to talk and they're already open, you only need an hour. <laughs> It's true. The yeah. first hour of, of uh, You Made It Weird is wonderful, but it's usually the bits that are sort of melting them into the second hour. Yeah. 
But we did the second hour in the first hour. Yeah, I think so. Do you believe in God? I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Pete. Thanks. Thank you so much to Pete Holmes for coming on today's show. If you haven't seen Crashing, you can stream all three seasons right now on HBO Go and HBO Now. And you can get his book, Comedy Sex God, wherever you get books, including through the link in the description for this podcast. And definitely check out You Made It Weird as well. If you enjoy this show, please tell your friends and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. The Last Laugh is distributed by Himalaya Media for The Daily Beast. It is produced by Jason Smith for Starburns Audio and Scott Porch for Himalaya Media. And this episode was engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazell. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. And you can find the show every week on Apple Podcasts, the Himalaya app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week.